Hello and welcome to episode 15 of When Life Gives You Lemons, Go Vegan. I'm a little bit excited about that. That's a big milestone, 15. It's like halfway to 30. <laughs> it's like basically 100. <laughs> anyway, this podcast celebrates and shares people's incredible stories of recovery after making the transition to a low-fat, whole-food, vegan lifestyle, if you didn't know that already, and I'm your host, Corinne Nidja. This week's episode is with psychologist, author, and exquisite communicator, Claire Mann, who shared her own story of becoming a whole food vegan, along with some truly fascinating thoughts on how to change habits and how to question our own assumptions and conditioning around our food choices, plus so much more. Enjoy. Hello, Claire. Thank you so much for being with us today. How are you? Very good. Thank you for having me on the show. Now, I've given you a bit of an introduction already, but I'd really like you to fill in the blanks about what you do with Vegan Voices and the work that you're doing as a psychologist and as a vegan activist. Thank you. Well, um, you realize when you start to tell people what you do, you realize how old you are. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm a vegan psychologist, but I also work generally as a psychologist. I run a private practice in Sydney for a few days a week, but really my influence has been of late is really to teach people to become exquisite communicators. So I run a 16-month leadership and communication program. I have online programs, which the public come to, which I go into small organizations. I don't work in corporates these days. I work in SMEs, helping them to have better communication, to have the conversations that matter, and develop workplaces that are more harmonious and places you want to work. So team building, that sort of thing. I do a lot of professional speaking in a number of areas. So it may well be in the areas of ethical leadership, asking organizations and individuals to step up to the plate of some of the challenges we have in society today. But I'm also a passionate animal rights campaigner and a vegan. And so I work as a vegan psychologist working with individuals who are trying to live in a non-vegan world. And part of that is teaching people to communicate effectively. And that's where you mentioned Vegan Voices, which is a smartphone app of 30 days of video training and resources to help people share the message. So that's me in a nutshell. <laughs> okay, brilliant. I, I, I'm very excited to learn more about, to look at your app in more depth and to check out all of your resources on that app because it sounds, it's a really important thing. I think a lot of vegans um, online and in social media world, you know, it can be such an emotive, reactive, strong space which often pushes people away from the movement rather than drawing them forward with our language and the way we communicate because it is a, it, it does trigger a lot of a lot of emotions in people and so being able to communicate this message in a loving kind approachable articulate way is so important i think so it sounds like such a great such a great resource and tool for people especially people who want to do really meaningful activism that reaches reaches people rather than alienates them. I think you're, you're absolutely right. And I think it's the key is you need to talk to people in the language they understand. And I mean, it's all really about having difficult conversations. And there's such a resistance to that in our society. You really should be taught at school how to talk to people about it. There's a lot of opinions that are differing. There's a lot on the table that you can lose or gain or the stakes are high and the emotions are high. And we'll talk about this, no doubt, in our conversation, but, you know, what are those barriers to change and resistance? And um, one thing I didn't mention, which is also an example of 
talking to people in the language they understand is we have a free downloadable digital business magazine called Ethical Futures, Skills for Conversations That Matter. And so we speak in a very business language there to um, leaders and executives about how can you be profitable and successful without abusing people, the environment or animals. And so really we've got different offerings in different languages to get people thinking and taking responsibility for their actions on their health, on their families, their communities and their society as a whole. So I want to backtrack just a bit and to go back into when you first made this change to a whole food plant-based, to a, you know, to a vegan diet lifestyle. I don't like calling it a diet, but for some people it starts as a diet. And then they get the ethical reasoning behind it. And they make, for me, that was what it was. It started as a diet for my health. And then I made the connections with the animals and then the planet. And then it became a, went from being a plant-based diet to being a vegan diet, basically. Vegan lifestyle. But yes, people who are listening who may not be vegan or who are vegan might want to just hear how you came about veganism in the first in the first place and 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 how you made that transition in your life and in you know in and, and even socially in your life how it affected your social relationships for me it's always been about animal social justice for me if i had to live on french fries for the rest of my life rather than eat anything to do with an animal that might cause them pain i would do that the hidden story for me was when you are on a whole food plant-based diet, this amazing sort of health-giving properties come across you and you think, wow, this is just extraordinary. So it was back in about 1979, actually, and I was a teenager. And I wonder if you were born then, actually. <laughs> that was the year I was born. There you go. So I was a, te a teenager. And I read a book by Bob Geldof. Now, many people remember he was in the Boomtown Rats. And if they don't remember him, he had the song, Tell Me Why I Don't Like Mondays. And also every um, Christmas time, we hear that song, And So This Is Christmas. And that was part of him raising money for, for people starving in Africa at the time. But he wrote a book, a very early in his life biography, called Is That It? And in that biography, autobiography, so in that autobiography, he explained working in an abattoir in Dublin, in Ireland. And I didn't see anything, I didn't hear anything or smell anything, but I could at this moment give you chapter and verse of what happened to that particular cow and the fear and the pain and the, the horror of the slaughterhouse. And it was in that moment I gave up meat. I just did not want to be part of that. And it's interesting that I didn't ask more questions because I was so horrified. I didn't think it was possible that you could deal with animals in that way in an industrial situation. Now, 40 years later, that issue is much, much bigger because of the sheer size and demand and profiteering. That means the methods are even crueler. But I went along my merry way, not eating meat, and I really became a vegetarian. And I do believe there's some sort of fate here. I was allergic to dairy products. and I had quite a chronic skin condition. I had uh, eczema and I was under a skin specialist in the UK for a year. And it was amazing that they never asked me what I ate. <laughs> yes. And it was really meeting a medical herbalist who said, you're allergic to dairy products. And two weeks later, I was cured of my condition by taking that out of my diet. So that was quite extraordinary. And I started to ask more questions about being healthy. So I was sort of getting there virtually vegan, a little bit of fish, a little bit of eggs, possibly a bit of chicken. And it was many years later, I guess, and I was living in New Zealand. My partner and I built an off-the-grid house. We 
lived in the top of the South Island. We wanted to prove to people we could live with a very low footprint on the earth, running a couple of businesses off satellite internet powered by solar with a glass of champagne in our hands. <laughs> and we managed to do it. And whilst it was an absolutely beautiful thing we had created, I became aware of the farming industry, the intensified farming industry and the dairy industry, and also a hunting culture in New Zealand. So I really started to become aware of the awful cruelty that's done in the name of sport or to make profit. And so I started to investigate and such was the the horror of the cruelty in the dairy industry, their babies being taken away from mothers, etc. But also the fact that dairy is incredibly bad for our health. And I didn't like the lies and the duping that was happening towards people. And it was one of the reasons I came back to Australia. It was very difficult living on the edge of that sort of raw environment. And came back to Australia and realized I had to find out more. And my partner said, we need to find out more. This can't just be New Zealand. And he came across the factory farming of pigs in Australia. And I can honestly say in, in nearly 30 years of being a psychologist, I didn't know I could hurt that much because I saw the potential of profiteering to abuse animals and in turn cause people to be sick through those processes, through what they're eating, and actually make it sound as if this is a healthy and abundant lifestyle. And I was so horrified. I, In that moment, I guess I became vegan, um, although I didn't actually know that's what a vegan was. <laughs> yes. And so for me, it's come down an animal social justice trail, um, but exponentially, my health has improved dramatically Someone who asks those questions about where their food comes from sees a dramatic change in their physical health, starts to ask questions. So I, I really had a healthy diet, um, but the whole food plant-based diet and an increasing amount of raw in my diet came several years later. And I'm sure if I was on 100% raw, my health would improve even more, if indeed it could do, because the health-giving benefits of being on a whole food plant-based diet is just extraordinary. So I guess that's my journey. I hope that gives you a bit of a snapshot of a combination of things. What I wanted to just go on to is how that affected like your change, how that affected your relationships. Like did your was your husband a partner on board straight away and your family members or was it was there a lot of pushback from them because a lot of people find it they're like, well, I have to cook two meals now extra, you know, one for my husband and one for me and one for my kids. Or they say, you know, no one wants us to go around to their house because we don't eat what they eat and, you know, it's hard. So how did you find socially those initial years when you were? Well, I'm not a stranger to being an outlier. <laughs> um, one of my early books is called The Myths of Life and the Choices We Have. And it questions the, the shoulds, the oughts, the musts in our society. We should be married. We should walk, work in an organization for 40 years and buy a block of concrete called a house. We should put money away and do jobs perhaps we don't like because the benefit will be great in the future. We must have children. We must do Christmas. These were things always in my life I questioned. Not saying they're bad or good things, but you know why do people blindly do it and sometimes even complain about them and never do the thing they truly want to do in with their lives because they feel they'll let people down or they, they'll get criticized or whatever. So I'm not a stranger to that. And that was partly my upbringing because my father always, you know, was a person who stood out against things. And I'll tell you a brief story, as I, if I may, and, and I think this highlights for listeners the power of our conditioning um, in good ways and bad ways and, and also the importance to make our own choices. My father 
after he was in the D-Day landings, my father's in his 90s. He was in the Royal Marines in the D-Day landings in the Second World War of our last century. And he then left and, and worked in a number of capacities, but he was working as a lorry driver, a long distance lorry driver, and just loved being out on the road and, and the freedom of that. And it was quite a manually physical job, sorry, physically manual job. And um, there was a trade union at the time, and 200 of the men, they were all men at the time, 200 men went out on strike because they wanted more pay. And my father said, I actually think they pay us enough. We pay more than the industry average. I think they're very good. And the other guy said, yeah, but if we all go out on strike, they'll have to give us more. And my father said, that's not right. I'm not going to do it. And he was the only person who stood out against 200 people. And so I was brought up with that sort of view of life that if it isn't right, it doesn't matter if the whole world is against you, you're like a light in the darkness. Don't do it to be stubborn. Do it because you ask the question, is it right? Is it going to harm um, people, the environment or animals? Go with your heart, do what's right. And in the end, people will follow. And so I was brought up in that context. So I've always been around that. My partner was actually the person who showed me the factory farming footage, very ethical person, an individual who is prepared to go against the crowd to do the right thing. When you live in an off-the-grid house powered by solar and satellite and run businesses in that way. and <laughs> You're already there. Uh, you're already there and you recycle and you set up those sort of systems and they don't exist. So, and, you know, he was the one that came up with the idea of Ethical Futures, our magazine. So for him, you know, we did this jointly. We just knew it was not right. And so we both became ethical vegans um, nearly 10 years ago now. And... My family are in a different country. I'm in Australia, but of course his family and extended family are here. Really, we just spoke out to people and we told them, you know, and explained to people. And there could have been resistance. I think they were used to us being outliers already and being prepared to, to not go along with things if it didn't feel right. So I didn't find a lot of pushback really in that situation. There was either accommodation or it's okay, we'll eat later or we'll go somewhere else. So... There's certainly resistance when talking to people, but because, you know, my craft really and, and what I teach is about having difficult conversations, I've really got the skills to deal with the self-consciousness because that's what we're talking about. People rush around away from difficult conversations because they feel emotionally uncomfortable. And if they can learn to weather that and live with the emotion and give other people the right to their feelings and reactions, we can stay in the conversation rather than having to withdraw our own feelings and adapt ourselves for what's not right or to try and convince people to change their minds. So that, that's, that's the situation. But I will just say, and I've written about this in places like the Australian Vegan Magazine, I don't eat in non-vegan restaurants now. Now, it doesn't mean I don't go for coffee where other foods are uh, served, but I will not sit down where people are eating ostensibly animal meals. Um, not to judge, it's because it hurts me, because I know too much about the production of food and the effects primarily on animals for me, but also on people's health. It makes me want to cry. And so I will say to people, I, either I choose the restaurant or we meet afterwards or let's go somewhere else or I'll bring the food. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm just getting to that stage. Well, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because obviously if it's your house, you can choose in the sanctuary of your own home. But even when going to other people's is to, one could say if that's, and explain to them, obviously not around the dinner table is, and you know, you only people have to make this choice and there's no judgment. Some people are able to tolerate that. I was vegetarian for many years and it didn't get to me. Um, and I, people that 
are in part of that process of eating animals in that way. They obviously have not been to a slaughterhouse. And I think this is the challenge. Um, and we can't impose the blame onto people who, you know, are not causing the whole problem. They're part of what we've all done. We've all been brought up probably on meat or two, two veg or another cultural food. Um, but another option, if that didn't feel comfortable, is to have a conversation with the outside and say, hey, you know, really want to come around, looking forward to spending the day. Um, I know it's not where you are. For me, it personally pains and hurts me because I know what's happened to them. So I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to come around. We're going to open the presents to start. I'm actually going to go to a vegan lunch and I'll be back in a couple of hours. It's not to judge you, but you know, I know you don't want me sitting there feeling awful, not against you, but against what I know that you're not yet, um, you know, we've seen and the images I've seen. That's another option. And I know people that do that where they would go later. Um, but you've got to have that conversation before and separate the non-judgment of the person and talk about your own things. Is this personally pains me? I feel I want to burst into tears, you know, and it's not about me judging your choices, but I can't be part of that. That's another way. Um, some people wouldn't go at all. And, and yet, you know, you're, you know, these are lovely people you want to be around. So what you don't want is they shoot the messenger and then say, you're such an unreasonable person. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's right. And, you know, they're good people. They just have not expanded that awareness to that level, you know, to encompass all living creatures. So, so I guess you have to make those choices. Um, and, and, but do what your heart says, because, you know, it's what would you feel most comfortable with? How can you maintain your integrity and be in that? Because, if you look at it, you could say it was a, say you were campaigning for children not working in sweatshops and you became aware that all the linen and all the Father Christmas um, bags were made out of children working in sweatshops. You know, do you close an eye and say, what's well, their choice? Or do you say, hey, look, I'm spending my life campaigning for this. I cannot be part of this because I'm condoning it. You know, probably people might even be more understanding of that. But it kind of is the same issue. So think about it or, you know, when people are doing something where, you know, you're working, there's sweatshops involved or there's environmental destruction to a level. But you see that by doing it, and particularly when people have a choice, they're colluding with it. Something that you were passionate about of another level, a non-animal level, that you would be prepared to stand up for. So it's an interesting one. It is an interesting one. I wanted to ask you about the first early stages of... Food, that, what did you struggle with when you were first adopting the plant-based diet? Well, like so many people, um, you think, well, I've been, particularly ones that have come down to vegetarian, well, I've been vegetarian for a while. I'm, uh, you know, many years, actually, like the 30 years, I suppose. It's, um, I know what to do here. And I didn't adapt my diet. And I started to become irritable. Okay. And I think now I would say that was down to B12. Okay, now let's just dispel the myth about B12 because so many non-vegans and people that are very resistant to a plant-based diet say, there you go, if it was meant to be good for us, uh, that would be a completely complete diet is obviously B12 missing. Now, there's no B12 in meat and there's, so that's not where people get their B12 from. It actually comes from the bacteria on the meat. Now, when we lived in a, a more, more sustainable world, people used to pull the carrots out of the, the garden and it was the bacteria on the, the, from the earth that gave us the vitamin B12. Because we live in such a sanitized environment, and unless we belong to a local co-op or we grow our own, which I wholeheartedly um, encourage people to do, 
we are going to be subject to, you know, washing and potentially bleaching, potentially speed growing. So the vegetables don't and the fruits don't have as much nutritional value. And so that was one of the health issues I was challenged with only for a very short amount of time. Having that sort of awareness um, and interest in diet and health. And I'd done yoga for 30 years and, and was very interested in looking after my well-being. I was able to adjust that very quickly. And I don't take supplements. I take a green um, supplement called Vital Greens and also Sun Love Herbs. Um, and just by doing that, within almost a few days, I felt better. And I've never looked back in the last eight years. So well, that was my first part of my journey. Um, and I think another thing I see a challenge with, it wasn't so much for me, is people don't know what to cook. They don't realize that protein is available in every fruit and every plant. So they try to replace the meat, fish, eggs, or cheese with a lump of tofu, or it's got to be nuts, or it's got to be something that they see as a solid item. When in fact, it's, it's virtually impossible for someone to have a protein deficiency on any diet, even a junk food diet, as long as you have enough calories. So it's also, these days it's so much easier, is changing the whole way in which you view food. You don't have to have a, an item and then potatoes and vegetables are on the outside. It's, that's how we've been educated by our families, but also indoctrinated by the meat and dairy industries who hijacked the, the food pyramids and things. This was a deliberate political ploy after the Second World War in a number of countries to say we have to create more demand so we can create jobs. It wasn't nutritionists and dietitians that created those early pyramids. It was actually industry. And they've continued to do that and finance industries that in encourage people to do things that clearly are making them sick. Well, that's fascinating. I never, I never heard that um, explanation of how the pyramid was created is really interesting it makes so much sense as well when you think about it because you know I often think about World War II as the start of when people just became yeah the process industrialization of food and la 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 and how that that led to us uh, the obesity and the diabetes and all those kinds of that way of eating those foods with long shelf lives and high saturated fat high sugar high refined grains and those kinds of things so yeah no it's really interesting to think about the pyramid in that same mindset about impacts of World War II on food demand and all those kinds of things. Interesting, really interesting. So with your work now, if you wanted to talk a bit more about if people have struggles and challenges with habits and breaking through habits and those kinds of things, do you have any advice, tips for people who are, who are perhaps either two, two ways they're wanting to go vegan for ethical reasons they've seen earthlings or they've watched one of james Aspie's Aspie speeches or they've you know watched any of the you know the vegan couple or any of those people who are just awesome earthling ed i think his name is you know all those people who are great vegan activists and they want to go vegan but they're like oh, i love everything bacon and cheese and all those things or alternatively they're going if they've watched cowspiracy and they want to do it for environmental reasons or they've watched Forks over knives and what the health, and they're saying, okay, I'm overweight, I'm on medication for a pre-diabetic, all those kinds of things. I want to do this for my health. Either way, what what kind of if they're really saying, you know, I'm addicted to this type of way of this way of eating this standard Australian diet. I don't know if I can do this. 
mentally, physically, you know, I don't know if I'm capable of making this big change. What would be some advice that you have around changing your mind, helping, helping shift that mindset and making it a bit more easy and realistic for people? It was a late Viktor Frankl who wrote a, an amazing book after his experiences in a Nazi concentration camp. His book was called Man's Search for Meaning, presumably woman's as well. And he said in there, if we have a big enough why, we will take any how. So firstly, if people want to transition, they're finding it difficult. What is your why? Have you been given limited time to live? As someone said, in six months time, unless you change your diet, you're going to die or you're going to be in a wheelchair. You know, often when we have these big calls to action, the why is big enough that they'll take any how. They'll take the change in diet, they'll change the resistance from families, the social ridicule, the, the response to being addicted to certain foods for so long. They will change that. But so often change comes when something massive happens, not only in diet, but people lose a job, a loved one dies, they have a health scare. That's when they decide to change. I believe we should empower ourselves all the way along because no one's getting out of this alive. We're all going to die. <laughs> we either have a healthy, long, abundant, vibrant life or we have a mediocre life where we're physically and emotionally and spiritually limited. And one of those key things, we, the underlying thing is if we don't have good physical and emotional health, we really don't have a lot. Everything else, it's almost like a lower order need that needs to be looked after. And so ask yourself some questions is, do I love myself enough to change this? <laughs> you know, if I really want the benefits, can I put up with the short-term challenges? Now, change can be difficult for many people. Difficult for a lot, sorry, change can be difficult for a lot of people. We, we get into our ruts and neuroscience is really catching up with this now. Because it's not just, you know, mind over matter. When, let me just give you an example. When we learn new habits, it could be a bad habit or a good one. Let's just say a good one. We've learned, to, we've learned that suddenly going to the gym feels great. We go to the gym and I personally don't go to the gym. I prefer to be out in the fresh air doing more natural exercises. But people go there, they, they do some exercises, and they get that physiological shift and change. They have a sense of well-being. And they feel good and they go, oh my gosh, I really feel great. What has happened in that moment has been a physiological change with associated what we call positive hormones, dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, trust, hope, all those wonderful things. And we gave a thought to it. This is great. I want to do it again because it's great. In other words, the satisfaction reinforces the interest. And we find that little cocktail of hormones, um, sensations, feelings, thoughts, when they're repeated, they literally become triggers for each other. And that's why, of course, we can think back to a time when we had happy memories, and we might even get that flush of memory, and we physically feel as if we're still there. We remember a piece, we hear a bit of music, and we remember that lovely holiday. Okay? It literally becomes hardwired in the brain. So the little indentations we see on the brain's surface are not random. They are associated with the thought, feeling, sensation, hormonal balance, connections. And that's why when we try to change behavior from purely just a logical, you know, I must do my affirmations, um, we're literally hardwired to do something else. And a great analogy of that, those little indentations in the brain and how they become little grooves, it's almost, imagine you're going skiing and you get to the top of the, the, the piste. And once you start, there's no way you're going to stop because that is a well-worn path. 
And then one day you decide to go down a different path. You're going to get your skis and you're going to push through the, the, the sort of rugged sort of um, grasslands next to it. And it takes a while, but eventually there's a new path and then you go down there and you can't stop going down there because it's natural. And what's happened to the other one, with the temperature changing over different times of the year, if you don't use that other ski slope, it starts to grow over with weeds. Okay? In other words, you can extinguish one ski slope and you can start another one through repeated action. And that's what happens in the brain with those little indentations in the brain. Okay? So if we're going to change, we need to bring all our resources to the table. We need to have a big enough why, and then we need to... Instead of constantly moving away from the pain, oh, I miss those types of food, we've got to start having positive experiences where we can start to feel good. You know, I say to people, go on a plant-based diet, a whole food plant-based diet, um, for several days. You will probably, if you've been on a high meat and dairy diet, there'll be certain um, cravings. And they're cravings to respond to the bacteria in the stomach. They're not cravings for a rotting, dead piece of flesh, which is what meat is. Sorry to be so graphic, but it's true. We, I think in What the Health, one of the doctors said, it's highly unlikely you're going to have a craving for that. It's the reaction to the change in bacteria that happens when we no longer feed it with a certain thing, we feed it with something else. The same would happen when you're on a plant-based diet and you move if you were to go to a junk food diet. Okay, this will change as new bacteria comes up. So weather the storm. After a short while, you will start to feel a much greater level of lightness in your body. That's a positive reinforcement. And then I suggest for people that they they start to visualize that future of feeling healthier and healthier. You know, rank it up, that beautiful sense of ease and lightness in the body, easy digestion. You know, weight falls away from you. You the diet industry needs to get on board with this. You never have to diet again. Your body is a beautiful machine that will respond to just adjusting itself pretty naturally. Is, and you're never hungry, but your range of foods can be just extraordinary. And by doing that, you are reinforcing and feeling the emotions you will feel when you're more and more vibrantly happy. So I help people, often through meditation, is to teach themselves emotionally what it feels like to be in that healthy vital future okay so there's there's an element of it if we're going to go down the neuroscience range so is it takes about 30 days to create a new habit you know is it 15 days is it five is it 45 who knows but basically a habit is a memory of the body people often go to bed and they go oh no i didn't clean my teeth and they're just about to fall asleep and they get out of bed and clean their teeth now the teeth aren't going to fall out by not cleaning them tonight but we have become so in a habit, it's so ingrained in our neurology that we get up and clean our teeth because that's what our mum and dad told us to do. I do that regularly. <laughs> I lay there and go, I'm not going to go to sleep, just get up. <laughs> there you go. And that, but isn't that a wonderful example? A memory of the body, it feels unnatural. So you've, I, I say to people, don't just go a few days on a plant-based diet and say, oh, it's not working for me, I crave that or I feel hungry. You know, when you have a whole food, organic, plant-based diet, you'd be absolutely amazed at how the energy release over time, you never feel hungry. <laughs> it's quite extraordinary. And you think, well, gosh, it's such a light food. How is that possible? We've come associated with clunks of food that fill the hole up in our tummy. We are far more energetic than that. Our, our cells are using that energy. That's what gives us energy and, and not having those hunger cravings. So I say to people, you know, set yourself a task 
and try to set up a habit so it is repeatable is work out your diet plan of this plant-based diet make it an interesting and varied nutritious you know very tasty um diet you don't have to live on lettuce leaves you know it's you can make this amazing food doesn't all have to be raw you can have curries and pastas and all sorts of wonderful things it just has to be of a whole food nature and a large proportion of raw fresh foods is allow that to happen over a period of time you start to change habits your body starts to feel unnatural if it doesn't do it okay so there's also individual myths and assumptions unquestioned shoulds oughts and must people jump to conclusions oh i must i I went back off the plant-based diet because i i knew i wasn't feeling well i missed meat they suddenly become phds in nutrition they never thought about protein or meat before um, they don't ask bigger questions. Why is that? It's not to do with that. No one's born craving meat or else we go out and we be, you know, hunting ourselves. We actually are, we're not suited for that at all. Um, so it's indiv- there's physical, there's individual, there's questions, those myths and, and unquestioned assumptions. I'm just going to interrupt for one moment. What you were just talking about, so I just want to, don't want to lose what you were saying. A lot of people do say that, that have tried a vegan diet and haven't thrived, found themselves feeling weak, emaciated, sluggish, depressed. And the the among health professionals, I regularly, I regularly hear this, um, not all diets suit everyone. Some people need a bit of meat. Some people need a bit of this. Vegan diets don't suit everyone, but you know, the blood type diets, all those kinds of things. But I mean, what do you say to people who say, I, t- I tried being vegan for six months, it didn't suit me? Because I have my own thoughts on it, but I'd like to hear, because people often say, you know, I've heard that not one, one diet doesn't suit everyone. And I think that for me, I think that that is flawed logic personally, but I'd like to hear what you would say to someone who who thinks that and says that and believes that. Sure. Well, I'm not a doctor or a nutritionist, but I would say, sure, but I would say that is utter nonsense. And I do that from coming from a scientific background and actually doing enormous amount of research and also listening to individuals like doctors and plant-based nutritionists who research this. If someone is feeling weak, they, of course, it begs the question, you know, the people that are not on a plant-based diet feel, feel weak. Of course they do. Do people on a, a full meat diet have iron deficiencies? Yes, they do. So it's not the plant-based diet per se. I would suggest that, they, number one, they're detoxing. Their body, the cravings they get, the tiredness is their body has been full of eating animal products. And you, when you have to watch films that you and I are very aware of, like What the Health, to realize the addictions inherent not only in that bacteria issue, but also, you know, there's enormous amount of chemicals and hormones in these foods. So when you shift that, there's enormous amount of detoxing, you are going to feel uncomfortable. All right? So that has to be cleared out of your system. But also I find it's often because people have just taken out the meat, eggs, fish, and chicken and have not replaced that with sufficient, they have more carbohydrates, say they have more bread, they have more um, processed pasta foods. They don't eat a wider plant-based diet, okay, of you know, real live food, okay? If they like potatoes, eat potatoes, as Dr. Michael Claper says. These are natural foods that come out of the earth. So it's, their diet is not um, varied enough. It's not got enough fresh food element in it, or it's been highly 
um, kept in con- or it's been kept in conditions that our large supermarkets have, which is where the food, the nutritional value is often robbed. For instance, I lived in New Zealand for several years, and there was not one apple that left New Zealand that wasn't a year old. They were picked when they were underripe. They were put into a storage where the oxygen's removed. The nutritional value goes out the window too um, because to create supply and demand. And they were then shipped. And that's why those apples don't taste as good as they did 20 years ago. And so if people buy their food from supermarkets, it's often speed grown. It's often sprayed with chemicals we don't want in our bodies. Um, And often on inferior earth, so it's not able to build those nutritional elements. So that would be my answer to that. You are really making me want to get back into my veggie patch. (laughs) I've neglected it for the last year since my son was born and now I'm thinking, all right, all right. Claire's making some good points. Let's just grow our own food. (laughs) Absolutely. So you've got this sort of thing. But there's a huge social element is, you know, traditions and values and mother-in-laws and mothers saying, look, we've always eaten like this. This is our tradition. And I say to people, Become an exquisite communicator. We can talk about that in a moment because that, it goes hand in hand with those. Our, look at our own resistances. Look at our defense mechanisms. People often say, I haven't got the money to buy, you know, organic food. I haven't got enough time to buy um, food of higher quality. And I say, well, have you got enough time to die? You know, because ultimately when you invest in this amazing machine called our, our bodies, you know, that will take you a long way. And the money you save on not being sick is extraordinary. I, I say to people, I was virtually vegan probably for over 20 years um, and vegetarian before then. I haven't been to a doctor for 26 years. You don't have often the health issues related to what is called food poisoning, which is the food we eat. Yes, I get tired. I get run down. I get a sore throat. I've had certain things happen, but I would... I personally choose to work with nutritionists or um, acupuncture. And of course, if I broke my leg, which I've done in the past, I would go to a doctor and a a hospital. But I don't have the sort of health challenges that primarily for many people are associated with their diet. Other issues, of course, we need to be cognizant of that, be responsible and seek out healthcare when we can. What would be your three biggest tips to, for anyone who's listening, who wants to adopt a, pl- a whole food vegan diet? Well, number one, question assumptions. Question your personal, social, cultural, familial shoulds, oughts, and musts. Because often that's all they are. <laughs> okay, I should eat that. I must eat that. I ought to be pleasing to my family. Therefore, I can't do it. You know, live your own life. Take responsibility. You still have great relationships. But question assumptions and see what the myths are that are keeping you trapped in adopting a lifestyle that will transform your life um, in terms of health, your purse, your vibrancy and your emotional ability to, to do amazing things in the world. So that's my first one. The second one is to educate yourself. Become a detective. Keep an open mind and seek out information. Go to resources that have people that are vibrant and healthy. Watch videos and documentaries that support this lifestyle. And often they're criticized not because they're not telling the truth and not that scientific evidence doesn't back it up. It's because industries pay a lot of money to silence people when it's opposite to them doing something that would make that industry profitable. So surround yourself with information. OneGreenPlanet.org is a fabulous resource of 10,000 recipes. So... and. 
that's very important too. And really become a great communicator because that's important because it's often the social or the cultural issues that stop people doing what is right for them. And that's not a plant, just a plant-based diet. It's having the job or the career or downsizing and living in a smaller place so you can do a different job. So become a great communicator so you can talk to people effectively about your choices because that needs to accompany the physical changes you're, you're making. Does that help? It's great. It certainly does help. It's amazing. I, really, I think I love hearing each time I ask that question, I get, like, so, sometimes I get a few similar, but it's nice to get varied and different answers, I think, because they're all helpful to a different, you know, they're, they're all going to be perfect for each individual who's listening to this, who needs maybe a different tip that's really going to work for them. Lovely. <laughs> yes. Okay, so just tell us about more a bit more about your work now and where people can find you to work with you or people can find your information about how to be an amazing communicator, all those kinds of things. So, yeah, I'd love to hear more about what you're doing. Well, there's two areas of work. It's all about how do we have the conversations that matter um, in its widest sense. So one of my websites is called Communicate 31. How do we become exquisite communicators 31 days a month? And it's usually at this point people ask what's happening in February. <laughs> Communicate31.com and there's resources on there. There's, um, I have a book called How to Say What Needs to Be Said, When It Needs to Be Said and The Way It Needs to Be Said. And there's online programs. There's a, a leadership and communication program for people that want to be exquisite communicators, to have all difficult conversations, to be made a breeze. Okay. I also have a website called claireman.com, which is my general website, I guess, more about my psychology practice. Okay, and there's free resources on there and other books that you can access, the myths of life and the choices we have. You can obtain that on any of those websites. But for vegans, particularly working, for vegans, particularly those down a path of exploring the ethics and our use of animals, veganpsychologist.com would be a website that increasingly I'm spending my time on. And on there, you'll notice that there is a particular article called veganpsychologist.com Vistopia. Now, Vistopia is a term I have given to an existential condition that ethical vegans suffer from. So many people say, why are people so passionate when they find out about animal cruelty? And why do we have to change our lifestyle? I believe this is because of uh, an existential crisis, i.e. trying to make sense of being in the world and what it is to exist. So I'll just briefly explain it because it will take us to another ethical level. So dystopia is an existential experience of vegan experiences when they come across the systematized cruelty in our society. And then they try to tell people and they come across the defensiveness and they have to deal with what I call a trance-like collusion with a dystopian world. Okay, that sounds very heavy going. Dystopia is the opposite of utopia. Utopia is a wonderful place of joy, harmony, abundance. Dystopia is darkness, greed, corruption, competition, and totalitarianism. When you store a plant-based diet and look beyond on individuals and they're, they're caught in a socioeconomic system of slavery, really, you look at the cruelty to animals, you look at the use of our resources. I believe we are living in a hidden dystopian world. And the ethical vegan not only 
finds out about animals, they then have to try to share with people the issues which is compromising their health, their environment, their conscience, and their decency and collaboration in society. So I encourage people to go and look at that ethical issue. So there are resources there, and I have a new book come out, coming out called Vistopia in 2018, which is the mental anguish of living in a non-vegan world. I have to read this book. I have lots of mental anguish. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's right. And it's not just about the animals. It's that in and of itself is enough. But actually, it's about when you realize the abuse of our environment, of, of people in our society that have to work in the most heinous conditions. The fact that by feeding animals on soya beans, it's to in intensive farming, that there are people starving around the world. There are ocean dead zones. So our dystopia, our angst there, is related to all these issues. A plant-based diet actually solves all of them, including our health. So there's resources on that one there. There's also, on that website, you'll hear about Vegan Voices, vegan-voices.com, which is 30 days of free video training on how to talk about all things vegan. And then there are resources and links and videos you can forward to other people. So I encourage people to have a look at that is, you know, sign up to be hearing about the book on veganpsychologist.com, but also more in the general communication area of people that are interested in doing the right thing, but don't want to explore the plant based, don't want to explore the ethical issues related to animals. I encourage them to look at Ethical Futures, which is a digital magazine, ethicalfuturesmag.com, free downloadable business magazine that says, how can we push things in the right direction so that our decisions, particularly in a business and work context, can be more ethical and not abuse people, the environment and animals? That magazine sounds like it'd be so useful to so many people who are wanting to make have ethical and sustainable businesses but may not know where to begin or how to navigate that arena. So that's a great resource, I think, for people who are wanting to, to make a difference in that area. Beautiful. Yeah, well, please go and help yourself to those resources and, um, and they'll help you on your way. So it's really all about how do I work out my own self-talk and my, increase my self-awareness and then do I, how I match that with a level of linguistic mastery that enables me to have the conversations with myself and with other people that really matter. That is brilliant. Thank you so much. I've thoroughly enjoyed listening to you and and hearing a completely different perspective of this issue than I than I normally am immersed in. So it's been really, really wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And good luck with everything you're doing. Thanks so much, Claire, for taking the time to talk with me and share so much wisdom from the work you do to help people not only to make the change to a vegan lifestyle, but to become better communicators and activists to speak up for the animals and the planet. Now, next week's guest is not to be missed, and I know that I say that every week. If you haven't subscribed yet, hop to it, because next week I interview Andrew Spudfit-Taylor all about his year spent eating nothing but potatoes in an attempt to overcome food addiction. I think many of us can relate to feeling a bit out of control when it comes to food and our eating. My mind was completely blown so many times throughout my interview with Andrew, so I know you're going to love it. See you next week. 